I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We've been uh, teaching a series for the last several weeks on uh, the seven letters to the churches. And I want to back up to chapter 1 today and, and remind you of the circumstances surrounding these letters and how they came. John said, beginning in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I felt that his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in, thy right, in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, meaning pastors, of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So Jesus appears to, to John not in any form that he's ever seen him before. He appears to him as the conquering, victorious Lord and Savior. And the, the uh, significance of him being in the midst of the seven churches and the seven, uh, the seven candlesticks, which are the churches, and the seven stars, which are the, the pastors of those churches, is that he is personally observing everything that's going on with them at the time that this is given to him. We, uh, we understand that this took place about 93 A.D. There's uh, a time of great persecution John is experiencing some of that, and that's the reason why he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And, um, and it's, a, it's a real important time, crucial time for the church because of the persecution that they're enduring. And Jesus has a message for each of those seven churches. Now, we've covered four of them, I believe, and this morning we're going to start in chapter 3 with the church at Sardis. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1, and under the angel, meaning pastor, literally messenger, but it's talking about... Uh, a human being not an angel spirit being God wouldn't have to go through John to talk to an angel meaning a heavenly being and unto the angel of the pastor of the church in Sardis write these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars I know thy works and that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead this is not starting off well now, remember, the, the phraseology is a little different in the Greek than it is in the English. It says, I know the works of thee or the works of you. And that signifies a personal observation. It signifies that he is walking in the midst of the churches. 
He has the seven stars of the seven pastors in his hand. He knows intimately, firsthand, what's going on in each one of these churches. And he has a specific message and information for each of these seven churches that relates to them. Generally, it relates to everybody, but specifically it relates to them in a way that it wouldn't to the others. And so he says, I know thy works. I know the works of you. And then he relates that to the name, the reputation. You've got a reputation. The reputation that you have among people here on the earth is that you're alive. Folks, this is America's church. This is the church that everybody wants to be a part of. If we looked at this church from the outside, we'd be impressed with their programs, their facilities. They don't have parking lot attendance. They have traffic flow experts. Everything about them says great church. Jesus says, I know your reputation. I know that you've got a name among people that you're alive, but you're dead. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. There's not much going for this church at all as far as Jesus is concerned. For I have found, I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis. Now, the church is well known. The church is very popular in the city. We don't know necessarily that it's the biggest church in Asia, but it's, it's very large, very well attended. And he says, thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, which means most people have. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, folks, this is a church that's well-known. It's very popular. It's, it's well-respected in the city. They, they've won civic awards if they give those out in those days. But Jesus said that they're dead. Sardis is the dead church. Now, let me tell you something about the city, of, the history of Sardis. In this, uh, uh, this letter, this information will become even more important or significant to you, I believe. <laughs> Sardis is one of the, the oldest cities in Asia. It was founded around 1200 B.C. And it has gone through um, a number of different rulers, rulers and, and control of other kingdoms and, and so forth. But it became the capital of the kingdom of Lydia in about 550 B.C., uh, 560 B.C. About 10 years later, there was a, uh, it was in its heyday because it was... Uh, Located in a, a very fertile, the most fertile plain in all of Asia. The crops and the, the food and everything that they grew was, was beyond anything anybody else could, uh, had access to. It was uh, rich in mineral deposits in that area. As a matter of fact, uh, the king of Lydia, the last king of Lydia, was uh, a man by the name of Croesus. And he was the one that started, originated many gold and silver coins. They were stamped with the, the symbol of a lion on one side and uh, a city structure on the other side. And they were the first ones in uh, history 
to, uh, to mint gold and silver coins. They were known for their jewelry making because of the, the, uh, the gemstones and the, the precious metals and stuff like that that were uh, in abundance in that area. They also were the first place where anybody ever dyed uh, wool and, and colored fabric. And so that became a source of uh, economic um, prosperity and boom for them too. They were, um, uh, Croesus built the temple of Artemis during his reign. He didn't reign for a long time. But during his reign, he built the temple of Artemis that was one of the seven ancient temp- uh, wonders of the world. It wasn't as big as the temple in, uh, in Ephesus, but it was built a lot sooner than that, a lot, many years before them. And so it was uh, even of greater renown than, uh, than the temple in Ephesus. Croesus was thought to be, and probably correctly, the, the wealthiest man in the world at the time that he was king of this, uh, this region, and Sardis being the capital city. Now, it was, um, uh, it was, there was a river that ran through this fertile valley, and this river was famous for its golden sands, and that's what got them looking for gold to begin with. And they, they developed mining methods that were very advanced and so forth. Archaeologists have found that there are about 300 crucibles for the refining of gold and silver in that area. So it's a very, very wealthy place, very, very important because of its wealth. And at a certain time when Croesus was king, it became the uh, crossroads between the Babylonian and the Ionian kingdom. The Ionian kingdom was the uh, forerunner of the Greek empire. So it was a very important place, located strategically and so forth. But the thing that made Sardis most famous was what it was built on. In this fertile valley, there was a, a mountain just on the edge of the valley. And leading up to this mountain, it was about 6,700 6, feet high. And leading up to this mountain, there was a plateau very, very large plateau that was about 15 feet above the valley floor. And they built the city of Sardis on this plateau. Now, these walls were almost straight up, 1,500 feet high. That's about a third of a mile. And so on three sides, it was protected, backed up by the mountain on one side, and the plateau walls on the other two sides. And one side had a, had a little bit less steep slope to the south, that was the only place that you could get to it, get to the city from. And so when they built the city, they built the walls on top of this plateau. So it was in, impenetrable. They were, and as a matter of fact, it was never militarily conquered. Nobody ever knocked the wall down or, or seized, besieged the city in that manner in its entirety, of, in its entire history. But there's something very significant about the... Um, the city and the history of Sardis that makes the, the information that Jesus gives them important. And that is they were, they were conquered twice. Now, they changed hands a couple of times. One, in, one time they changed hands, became under the control of Alexander the Great. But that didn't really count. Alexander the Great was marching through the territory, and so they just opened the gates, and everybody ran out and said, we give up. So it's not like they were taken over or anything. You know? But there were two times that they were conquered and both of them in the same way. Because the, the people uh, and, and the city was famous for, and known for the walls and the impenetrable fortresses that, uh, behind the walls and, and so forth, that, uh, that the people would, wouldn't even set guards on the walls at night. Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
You've read about him in the Bible some. In 549 B.C., in response to something that Croesus had done, he gave Cyrus an excuse to go take his wealth, or at least try to. And so he went to the, the valley. His plan was to uh, conquer the city and take the riches and the wealth and the renown of this uh, uh, King Croesus. And um, he got to the valley floor, and for 14 days they couldn't figure out a way to get up there. And so he talked to his generals and to his uh, military leaders and advisors. He said, I'll give a great reward to anybody that can figure out how to take this city. Well, they had stationed spies all around the place and, you know, to watch and see if they could find any vulnerable location or whatever. And one guy by the, by the name of Ligorius noticed that there was a, a soldier, a Sardinian soldier on top of the wall that leaned over and his helmet fell off. Well, he's looking around, trying to figure out what am I going to do now? And he was watching this guy. And so he waited for a while and saw this guy hit himself where he couldn't be seen. And he saw the Sardinian soldier climb down a certain place, not at that place where the, where the helmet fell off. But he saw the Sardinian soldier climb down the walls, these 1,500-foot cliffs. And apparently the kind of... Uh, rock that was the plateau was made from it had crevices and places for handholds and stuff like that so he crawled all the way down there climbed all the way down there got his helmet and climbed all the way up well Ligorius goes back to Cyrus and says here's what I saw he just happened to be from Crete he was a Persian soldier but he happened to be from Crete who has cliffs and stuff like that he says you know I grew up climbing cliffs all my life he said I think I can follow him back up so they waited till nightfall and he did. He climbed up to the top of the thing, got to the wall, found out the wall was unguarded. And so a number of other Persian soldiers followed him up to the top. So many to the, uh, to the point where the next morning when Sardis woke up, the city was full of Persians. And so now they went. Well, this goes on for a couple of hundred years. They surrendered to Alexander the Great. But then in 214 B.C., Aristarchus the Great, Aristarchus the Third, the king of Seleucides, Seleucides, I guess that's how you say it, I don't know. They're not around anymore, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but he comes to, to conquer Sardis. He's running in the same situation. He gets to the foot of the cliffs, and he says, what do we do? How do we get up there? We don't have the military might. There's no way for us to do this. And so they attempt to besiege the city or wait them out. But the city's resources are so great, the people inside the walls, they're not concerned about it. They're just watching everybody down there. So complacent, they're not even setting watches on the walls at night anymore, just like they did before, failing to do so, I mean. And they noticed, one of the soldiers noticed, his name was Herodias, one of the soldiers noticed that the vultures would sit on a certain place on the wall. And every day they'd come out and they'd dump the garbage off at a, at a location, you know, to, to go down to the bottom. And the vultures would fly down and get, eat the garbage. And then when they were finished with that, they'd fly back and sit on the same place on the wall. And so Herodias went to Aristarchus and said, there's no sentries on the walls. The vultures wouldn't be there if there was anybody around. And they always go back to the same place. So if we can breach the wall in that place, there's not going to be any defenses. So the cover of night came. They did just exactly that. 
They climbed up. Nobody was there. By the end of the, the uh, end of the night, when morning came, the city was full of the Seleucides soldiers, and so they conquered the city. The point is very simply this, folks. They're doing spiritually exactly what they did naturally in their history. They're failing to watch. Remember what Jesus said, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief. I will come to you as a thief, and you'll not know what hour I shall come. Now go back to Janet, to um, what book are we in? Revelation. Go back to Revelation, and notice verse 3. Let me read this again. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. The only thing we know about the church at, uh, at Sardis was that it was probably started when Paul was in Ephesus, the three years that Paul was in Ephesus. We don't know who would have started it. There's, uh, there are stories that are told because of the influence of John in that area of the world that John started the church, but that wouldn't make sense. He wasn't there until many years after, uh, you know, when he was a much older man. But uh, So our best guess is that the church started around 52, 54 um, A.D., when Paul was in, in uh, Ephesus for those, that period of time. So when it says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, it's talking about go back to how the church began some 40 years before. Go back to how the church began. Remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel. And hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, you don't have anybody on the wall spiritually, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. To do what? He doesn't say. To understand that, you're going to have to read down a little further. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk worthy in me and with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh. Now notice verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, here's the blessing. Here's the result for the one that overcomes. Now, the one that overcomes is the one that watches and repents. The one that changes the the way that they're going. That's the overcoming that he's talking about. He said, if you don't overcome, I'll come as a thief and you don't know when I'm coming. To do what? Notice what is the opposite of the overcoming blessing. To him that overcometh. I'll clothe him in white and will not blot his name out of the book of life. What Jesus is saying to the church is, if you don't watch and repent, I'll come as a thief and I'll take you. And your name shall be blotted from the book of life. Now, that doesn't mean physical death. It means you'll lose the place in God that you once had. Folks, living right seems to be important to Jesus. He said, you've got a few. I don't know how many of the few is. The Holy Ghost uses the, the term a few when it's talking about the, the ones that were saved from uh, in Noah's day from the flood. And that was eight. Eight people were saved and he calls them a few. So I would assume somewhere around that same number would be consistent with the, with the few Jesus refers to. I don't think we could um, say it was much more than that if he's going to use that terminology. But he says you've got a few, a few. I would assume that that includes the pastor. He says, you've got a few that haven't defiled their garments. That means there's a lot of people that have defiled their garments, meaning a lot of people aren't living right. Now, notice something about this church. Jesus doesn't say one word to him about false doctrine. 
Doesn't say one word to him about heresy. Now, we've seen a lot of that in some of what he said to the other churches. Not a word to these guys. Why not? Because they're living such complacent Christian lives, they're not interested in any doctrine, heretical or, or true. He didn't say a word to him about persecution. Even though persecution is taking place in severe, a very severe manner, less than 50 miles away. How come? Well, Paul said, they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That leaves these guys out. They're not living right enough. They're not showing enough of a, a relationship with God to be persecuted about. But they're famous, at least within their own city region. They're famous. For being a living and alive and a thriving church. One of the things you find about Sardis, if you go there today, it's got some of the most uh, beautiful ruins of anywhere else in, this, in the area. Now, most of those ruins have been reconstructed. They've done a much better job of reconstruction on the ruins in Sardis than anywhere else. But there are certain things that we can uh, identify from those ruins. One was that uh, when Alexander... Um, well, as I said, Croesus, when he was king, he built the Temple of Artemis, and it was the, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It uh, declined over the years and certainly declined by the time that uh, John writes this to the churches. Um, in fact, there was an earthquake in 17 AD that destroyed much of the city. Tiberius rebuilt the city, but it was never restored to its original glory. But the Temple of Artemis was still there. And when Alexander the Great was in, in power... He built a great gymnasium. Now, a gymnasium means something different to us than it did in those days. We would say that um, we'd have, if we'd used our modern terminology to describe what a gymnasium was back then, we'd have to say university because it was a place of intellectual learning, place of education. It was also a place of athletic endeavors and so forth. They were famous, the Greeks were famous for the games and so forth. And, um, uh, uh, but it was, it was all Hellenistic-based teaching. And the Hellenism, Hellenism, the basis for the Greeks that, that everybody still oohs and ahs over today, saying the Greeks were so far advanced in so many things and so forth, it's all about humanism. It's the, it's the idea that the human mind is the greatest source of knowledge of wisdom that is possible, meaning there is no wisdom of God, it's all human knowledge. The human achievement is the greatest thing that you could attain to. Pleasing yourself, pleasing man, rather than pleasing God. And the human body is the most beautiful form that there is. It's the most, uh, greatest example of perfection that there is. And that's the reason why many of the, uh, uh, many if not all of the Greek statues are all nudes. Because their idea was the, the human body is it. We want to worship and, and magnify the human body. And as a matter of fact, that's why the Greek games originally, or very soon after they started, uh, the Olympic games and so forth, were all uh, the competitions all took place with people in the nude. Didn't start that way. The Isthmus games started with uh, people running races in uh, loincloths and stuff. But one guy ran out of his loincloth and won the race. So everybody said, well, that must be the key to running faster and so forth. In addition to that, ticket sales went up for the female age group, <laughs> age 20 to 50. So they, from that point on, they all just did it, uh, ran the games and competed naked. But it all goes back to the Hellenistic idea that the human body and the human mind, the human being is the ultimate. 
uh, of wisdom and beauty and so forth. In other words, it makes no place for God even though they had a multitude of gods. Now, the, the gymnasium was built by Alexander. It was one of the greatest, well, probably the greatest of any in, in that region of the world. And the temple of Artemis was there having been built by Croesus. The, the, uh, the archaeological digs and finds have discovered the largest Jewish synagogue of any place in that part of the world as well. Huge place. Seat thousands of people. Now, you might say that that's a, that's a good thing, and it could have been a good thing. The problem was it was right next to the temple of Artemis. Right next to the temple of Artemis. Now, you might say, well, that, uh, wait a minute, I've got that backwards. The, the synagogue was right next to the gymnasium. That's right. The synagogue was right next to the gymnasium. And you might say, well, that, that could be a good thing because the Jews are picking prime property for their location, which is possible. And you could say that the Jews are trying to have an influence on, on the pagan world, and that would be possible too. The problem is that inside the, uh, the Jewish synagogue, the ruins of the Jewish synagogue, they've got Roman symbols inscribed in the walls. They've got pagan symbols inscribed in the walls, and they've got Greek symbols inscribed in the walls. So the reality is, and by the way, Josephus writes that there were, he identifies nine different people that were part of the city council of Sardis. So apparently, not only the location connected right adjacent to the gymnasium that would have been an affront and an offense to the Jews, a good Jew, but they have so mingled and mixed with the culture that there's hardly any difference between being a Jew and a pagan. The same thing was true about the church because the ruins of the church are within arm's length, a wingspan length of the temple of Artemis. And the same thing is true there. Now, the church, the ruins of the church is about three, uh, third century A.D. So it's not the same church that was there. But it's certainly an indication with the ruins and the articles and the pagan symbols and so forth that they found. It's certainly an indication that they did not heed the warning that Jesus gave them through this letter. Folks, I'd, I can say again, need to say again, that if we looked at this church or just heard about this church, we would think it's one of the biggest and best things going. But Jesus said it was dead. I've got a pastor friend that um, was more greatly in tune with the Spirit of God than anybody I've ever known. That, the exception of that would be Brother Hagan, but outside of him. I mean, he was, he was more spiritually in tune than just about anybody I can think of. And he had such a heart for evangelism. God told him to start a church. He did. Start a church in his city. He had such a heart for evangelism, especially for young people, that he decided that he was going to put all of his church resources, all of their efforts, into reaching the young people of their city. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, what he did is he built um, a youth complex that was second to none. I mean, it was the Disneyland of its day. It had gym facilities. It had game room facilities. It had free pizza and, and uh, snack bars and, and that kind of stuff available for the kids. And he just opened the doors, said, all the youth of the city come. Well, they did. They came. Came like crazy. It was a place that within a matter of a month, 
They won city awards. The city was coming out and giving them plaques and parchments and all this kind of stuff for their their great care for the city and, and so forth. It was big time. Well, things kind of rocked along a little bit. They preached the gospel, tried to get people saved. But by and large, the people that came to it didn't want to get saved. They came because of the glitz and the glitter. And so it became a place for drug deals. It became a place where the good little Christian girls became prey for the streetwise teenage kids, boys. Some of the girls wound up getting pregnant. It was a mess. They wound up having to hire half the off-duty police force just to come police and, and patrol the property whenever they were having events and, and so forth. And even that didn't stop all the activity. And finally, after a period of time, the Christian parents caught on. And so they wouldn't let their kids go. So it became just the street kids. Well, again, you can look at it and say, well, isn't it great that he tried? Yeah, it is. But it's all a matter of what you fish with. The bait that you use to fish with is really, really important. If you throw something out there that just attracts people rather than attracts people that are hungry, then you can do more harm than good. The pastor wound up shutting the thing down. The place was in mothballs last I heard. It's way bigger and better than anything else the city has, and so nobody can afford to buy it or wants it or could use it. Great idea. When you heard the vision of it, it sounded like, man, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. Folks, you've got to realize something, and that is this. Even from the beginning, even in the Old Testament, the instruction, the commandment of God was, come out from apart them and be, come out from apart from, come out and be separate from them, meaning the world, not like them. So many times people have the idea that if we can just be like the world, then we'll win them. Well, if you're going to be like the world, what are they going to see in you that they won't? And you see so much of the modern-day church doing that now. So much of the modern-day church, especially the big, big famous churches, seem to be falling all over themselves trying to figure out how can we welcome the gay community. Well, is that really what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to welcome anybody that wants to change their life. But are we really supposed to incorporate a sinful lifestyle into the church just so that we can say that we're not being tolerant and not judgmental? That is apparently what this church in Sardis was doing. To him that overcometh, Jesus said, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now that white raiment is the, the righteousness that we all receive when we are born again. But only a few people have not defiled those garments. In other words, there's only a few people in the church of Sardis, according to Jesus, that are bringing forth fruits of righteousness in their lives. It's an, it's an interesting thing because so much of the modern-day church nowadays seems to have the idea that I'm saved and I know I'm saved, so I'm just going to go experience life. Well, I'm saved, and I know I'm saved, so I want to experience God. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Now, bringing forth fruits of righteousness, in many cases, maybe in most cases, is going to be things that nobody ever sees that you do. 
It's going to be victories that you win over your own flesh in secret. But I tell you what other people will see. They'll see the strength that that victory brings to your life. They may not know what did it. They may not know what, what, the, what the, the cause of it was. But they will see the strength that it brings to your life. Now you tell me. What is Jesus identifying that he wants? Does he want a big popular church? Does he want people that are walking right? Living right? Separating themselves from the world? We don't know what the, the, the entirety of the fruit would be from the church of Sardis. They may be increasing in size week after week after week. But I don't think that we can say that they're getting anybody saved. The fact that Jesus didn't identify that would be a pretty good clue. Notice what he said. I'm going to start again in verse 1. I know thy works. And that thou hast a name. They do have works. They do have programs. They do have things that are. Maybe they've got beer and pizza outreach night. I don't know. In that day maybe female mud wrestling was a big draw. But they do have works. Jesus says I know the works of you. That thou hast a name. The name seems to be related to the works. I know the works of you and that thou hast a name. And the name is that you're alive. You're a living church. But you're dead. Be watchful and remain. I'm sorry. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, which remain. That are ready to die. It seems to indicate that you've only got a couple of things before you're completely dead. And you need to take care of those. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Repent, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. And hold fast and repent. Hold fast and repent. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to the right doctrine. Hold fast to the truth that they were built on. Paul didn't go start this church. Or anybody that came out of Paul's ministry. Didn't go start this church. And say just live like the world. Just make, your, make Jesus the Lord of your life. And then live any way you want to. That's not how the church started. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, remember the message that was delivered to you when you began. And hold fast to that and repent. Change the way you're going. Right living seems to be really important to Jesus. I know a lot of people, and, and thankfully this is not a, I wouldn't guess this is the majority, I don't know. But it doesn't seem to me that the majority of the people that are clinging to the, the grace of God message are using it as, a, as an excuse or a, a license to live any way they want to. But there are some. And certainly the message is preached to whatever degree, whatever measure. That since we're not under law, God's on your side and you can just do whatever you want to and he's always there. Well, yeah, he's always there, but that doesn't mean he always approves. Jesus is talking about things that he doesn't approve of here. He's talking about lifestyles that he doesn't approve of. Now, this doesn't win you any fans, folks. Nobody's going to pat you on the back and say, oh, wow, what a great message that is. Come out and be separate from the world. And honestly, I, I, you know, you, you judge this for whatever you think, but 
the Lord judged my heart. I'm not against anybody. But I am against certain things. I'm against what God calls sin. And I'll show anybody how they can conquer sin. I'll show them how God is willing to use his power to help them overcome the sin that's attached itself to their lives. But we see pretty clearly from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that you can't just turn your back on sin and say, well, that's okay. That seems to have destroyed a church here in Sardis. To him that overcometh. To him that overcometh. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. What does yours look like? Now, Pastor Mike, you've gone too far. Well, isn't that the whole point? I mean, are we just to shake our head and go, what a shame for these people? Are we to take something from it and learn from it ourselves? What does your raiment look like? Oh, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's how you start. Are you living up to that? Did you notice Jesus talked about people being worthy? Yeah, but I thought the blood of Jesus makes us all worthy. It does. It keeps us all worthy too when we walk according to it. Him that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Did you notice that he talks about blotting people's names out? Not writing people's names down? Because Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means everybody's name starts off in the book of life. It's our choice. It's our action that determines whether that name gets blotted out. Thank God mine's in there. How about you? To him that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Folks, you judge this for yourself. Here's what I believe. I believe that part of the ceremony in heaven is where Jesus takes each and every one of us and confesses our name before the Father. I don't believe this is just a casual, yeah, we'll let him in the gates. I believe this is a specific part of the ceremony when we're joined for eternity with our Father, with our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that a part of that ceremony is where Jesus confesses our name before heaven to signify that we're clothed in white, that we're worthy. Now, because I believe that, I can say with confidence that there's nothing here that this earth, this world offers that could possibly match that. That may be hard for us to comprehend because we live so in the flesh. But trust me, just take my word on this one. When you get there, you're going to realize how worthless the things of the world that took you away from the things of God really were. To him that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, are you listening? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What did this church at Sardis do? 
Best guess that we can make is they did nothing. Best guess we can make is they didn't watch. They didn't change. There's nothing in in the historical documents in the first and second century of the church that indicates any change whatsoever relating to the Christians of the church in Sardis. Not a thing. Now, you would think if a church like this, a church that was as renowned and well-known for their programs and their works and so forth, you'd think that if they made a change, the early church fathers would have told us about that. It's not conclusive proof, but in my thing, it's a pretty good indicator. What'd they do? Nothing. They stayed just as complacent, just as asleep as they were before. What happened? Well, if Jesus kept his word, he came upon them as a thief in an unknown hour to them. And many of their names were blotted out of the book of life. Solemn things to think about, aren't they? We're not saved by our works. Thank God we're not. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. And folks, I'm not talking about people that are struggling over their flesh and struggling with things in their flesh and diligently working and trying and struggling to overcome. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that have made a decision to just let go and forget about it. What do your garments look like? What do you look like through the filter of righteousness? Well, because of the blood of Jesus, I'm righteous and there's nothing that can be held against me. Okay, that's good. The Bible says that person brings forth fruits of righteousness. Can people tell you're saved? That's one of the biggest defenses, I think, of the modern-day church. Let's just live under the radar. We love God. We would never turn away from him. We'd never deny Jesus. But let's just live under the radar so that nobody really has an issue with us. We don't want to cause offense. And folks, I'm with you on that. I'm not into causing offense with the world. I think the people that go out and try to start fights with the world over sin are stupid. But the answer is just what the Bible says. To speak the truth in love. Are we willing to speak the truth? If so, we certainly need to do it in love. But so much of the church world isn't even willing to speak the truth. Forget the love part. They're just not going to speak the truth. We don't want to offend anybody. Got to be politically correct in these days, you know. Don't want anybody to say that we're judging. Folks, you don't ever have to worry about that. God already judged. For me to say that homosexuality is wrong or adultery is wrong or any other sin is wrong, God's already judged that. That's not me. I'm just saying what he said. If somebody doesn't like it, they don't have to take it up with me. Take it up with God. That's where I got it. I'm not against anybody that's in that situation, in any sinful situation. Like I said, I'll do all I can to help them out of it. So that should show that I'm not judging them as an individual. But tolerance is the death of Christianity. This is the most tolerant church you can find. And they're dead. Big churches can be dead. 
Famous churches can be dead. Thriving churches can be dead. Casual Christians can be dead. Let's pray. I'll let you off the hook. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the warning that it gives us. Lord, let us not be like these people. Not from a position of pride. Thank you that we're not like them. But Father, from a position of service to you. Let our lives be not so in tune with the world that we've lost our Christian witness and we've lost the strength of our relationship with you. Certainly the church in Sardis was that which Paul told Timothy. They had a form of godliness but denied the power. And we certainly don't want to be like that as a church, Father, and we thank you that we're not. But we don't want to be that like that as individual believers either. Father, we pray that the power of your righteousness that we've been made through Christ Jesus in his sacrifice would be an example, would be clearly seen to any and all. We pray, Father, that our relationship with you would be a drawing factor to everyone we come in contact with. The people might not even know what it is about us, but they would be stirred and question, what is it about you? There's something different. We believe that power of the Holy Ghost that dwells within us can cause that recognition, Father. If we'll live right and walk uprightly before you. Father, it's so good to live clean. I've not always been able to say that. But it's so good to live clean. It's such a strength. It's such a source of confidence. To live clean. Submitted to the will of God. To your plan and your purpose. It's so good to live clean. I thank you for the strength that it brings. I thank you for the blessings that it brings. But, oh, Father, more than anything else, I thank you for the fellowship that it brings and sustains that fellowship with you. There's nothing greater than walking close to you, Father. Nothing in the world. And there's nothing else that that causes that to be more than living clean before you. Clean hands and pure hearts are those that live in the secret place of the Lord. Father, you know the things that you're talking to us about. You know the work that you're taking that's taking place in the hearts of each and every one of us. I will not intrude upon that. 
I would simply pray for those upon whose hearts you're moving that they would yield to you that they'd surrender your will and on your, only your will that our goal would be to experience God not to experience life not the life of this world not to experience all that this world has to offer but to experience all that Jesus has done that's my prayer Father for this church both now and evermore that's my prayer for the people of this church let us learn from those who have gone before us those that lived right and lived clean but those that failed too quicken us Lord according to your spirit quicken us according to your word Jesus precious name if you can agree with that prayer say amen 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 you know after a service like this you could very easily influence people to cry and get people to repent out of emotion but the emotion fades and many times the decision to repent does too. But rather I would encourage you to make the adjustments that need to be made from your heart. Not because of how you feel. But because of what you know is true and right. Because you know of what God wants for you in your life. It's times like this. It's decision times like this. Where decisions are made that alter lives. God wants to alter yours and mine. But he can't do it without your consent. He can't do it without you exercising your will to choose him. He's already chosen you. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.